Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Jack Cassidy. Jack is a rock and roll hall of famer as a member of 60s icons Jefferson Airplane. For most of the last 50 plus years, Jack's played with fellow Airplane alum Yorma Kaukin in his hot tuna. Jack shares stories from his life immersed in music, from his time growing up in the melting pot that was 1950s Washington, D.C., through a look forward to getting back on the road this year. And to that end, check out the episode notes for links to the latest Hot Tuna tour dates as Jack and Yorma fire things back up. This episode is being posted on April 13th, 2021, Jack's 77th birthday. So please, join me in wishing a happy birthday and many more to our guest, American music treasure Jack Cassidy. Hello, it's Jack. Hi Jack, it's Lawrence. How are you? Hello, Lawrence. How are you? Where are you? I am just south of Seattle in a little town called Normandy Park. Okay, gotcha. All right, so we're, we're at least we're on the same time zone. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for making time, Jack. It's really exciting to be able to speak with you. Over the years, and, and more recently when I knew I was going to speak with you, um, you know, I've checked out a lot of interviews with you. And one thing that's really struck me is that um, you talk a lot about the diversity of the music that was around you when you were growing up. And, uh, right. and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. How did you come to be exposed uh, to so much different music at an early age? Well, I, I was fortunate. My, my father being a professional uh, in the medical field, a dentist, and, and his brother was a doctor. Uh, when he came of age in his 20s and whatnot, in the late, in the late 1920s, radio was just coming into its own and electronics in, in its own. And, uh, and he was always interested in that. It was a very exciting new field. Mm-hmm. His interest grew uh, in his twenties while he was at Georgetown university and medical school. And that led later on into the, into him doing on his own, uh, uh, studying electronics uh, uh, and, and just just as a hobby. And of course, his parents, you know, his, his mother said, yeah, you become a doctor, dentist, a lawyer. This this electronic stuff is fly by night business. Right. So he uh, he got interested in uh, he was always interested in music. But he got interested in electronics and started later on in the in the early 50s and started making his own uh, uh, own products own radios it was services like a, a heath kit was a a kit where you you built your own amplifiers and, and uh, tuners and built your own eventually hi-fi rooms and listening rooms and called in the east coast the rec room the recreational room <laughs> and so as i grew up with that my father had record collections and he loved jazz and and popular music of the time and so I was, I was exposed at a very early age to Eddie Condon, Big Spider Beck, and and uh, uh, Dixieland jazz, a number of different uh, different jazz players. And I was hearing that kind of music, along with, of course, what was uh, regularly on the radio. So 
when I was 12 years old, 1956, all this equipment was already up and he had built, turned the basement into a, a knotty pine rec room, listening room with a big Jensen 15 inch speaker and his garage turntable. And, and at that time, and this really makes me sound ancient, long playing records were just coming into being and everything was 78 before that. And so as the fidelity grew in, in, in the, the genre, I was right at the, the right age, around 12 years old, listening to all this different kinds of music. And uh, that gave me an appreciation for music, not just of the period that I grew up in, which was the um, you know later part of bebop and the early part of, uh, of rhythm and blues, um, uh, rockabilly, you know, country music at that period in time that was starting to use electric electric guitars and and jazz at the same time. So I, of course, was grew up in Washington, D.C., which is a cultural crossroads of so many different kinds of uh, influences in the United States, but as well, uh, music that was played in the concert halls, Constitution Hall, and they had concert halls in Washington, D.C. from all over the world. So literally one night I would be down at Constitution Hall listening to Prokofiev and the next night at the Howard Theater listening to Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. You know, a few months later, I'd be up in one of the jazz clubs listening to to uh, Eric Dolphy, uh, where I could go right across the Potomac River and into the country clubs and be listening to all the bluegrass guys and all the the country uh, guitar players and singers that came up through the, the Appalachian uh, uh, region uh, up through Virginia, because Washington, D.C. is just a, a, a federal 10-mile diamond-shaped zone yeah. right in the middle of Maryland and Virginia. So it's really, it's, it's Washington, D.C. had its, its, its roots in not only uh, Appalachian and and, and southern music but of course it turned out to be the crossroads of of jazz and rhythm and blues for the african-american community as well as all the classical music that would come through at the time so i just soaked all this stuff up it was it was there i could go down what we do now on uh with google and 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 searching up music is wonderful for the young kids today what i did was get on the number 12 bus go down to uh uh, to the Library of Congress, check myself into a little booth and listen to 78 records of music from around the world, you know, whether it, it be music from India, music, uh, music from, the, from the rainforest in, in, in Africa, uh, folk music, all the, the uh, Harry Smith collection uh, of folk music uh, from, from around the United States and the world. As a matter of fact, I did a, a thesis in the first year of college on the, on the child ballads, uh, tracing a lot of our Appalachian music and poetry and lyrics for songs back to, to the Irish and English and, and uh, mm. uh, uh, Scandinavian influences. Are you a musicologist or is it you're an obsessive fan? Like, how do you think about your, your fandom or, or your love for music? Well, you know, I don't... Th- I don't think of myself as a fan because I'm not on that side of it. You know, 
you guys were on that side of it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I found my pathway through music. And of course, once you, once you find your pathways, you do through literature and, and, and um, then, then you enter into that world and, and you, you follow the, the, uh, where the, where the thread will lead you in different directions. So if I had a position at a college or a university and, 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 and I was teaching the history of music or teaching, teaching different uh, aspects of, of the listening at the music, I guess that's, that's what I, I, I would be in that direction. But because I'm the player and because I'm the musician, I look at it a little differently. Um, I mean, naturally I, I have, uh, music that's inspired me tremendously, all kinds of music of all realms. That's why I never really answered the question, what's my favorite music or my favorite song or my favorite five albums? Yeah. Because it it all intrigues me ever since I, I first remember being about age three or three and a half in a, you know, a little rocking chair on a hardwood floor in front of this stand, standing RCA Victrola radio, where the top part you played it was playing, uh, you played 78 uh, records. The bottom part was a radio and listening to concerts on the weekends and listening to Burl Ives Folk Hour on, the, on Saturdays and, and to classical music on Sundays and just being really intrigued by that world. You know, you close your eyes and your imagination would take you off into the world of music. Yeah. Something that you lose a little bit, uh, I believe, with, and all music is done this way. You post your music with a visual on YouTube. I like to, I like the worlds that my mind took me to with the music when I listened to it. Yeah, yeah. I remember very specifically as a as a child, uh, very similar to what you just described. The radio was such a powerful, um, a powerful presence, and and. And part of it was, yes, they had, you know, they, they were physically imposing and it was just neat to, to be near like almost a piece of furniture <laughs> that emitted. That oh, 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 it was a piece of furniture. I mean, you look back on it and you oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, remember, there was the consoles that would go in the living room that had everything going on. And you pull out to change your a record player, you know, uh, you had your radio in there and a TV, too. I mean, it was a, it's a huge furniture piece in the in the 50s, particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, did, it sounds like, um, you know, you talked about your dad and his love of electronics and things like that. And I wonder, um, did you inherit the, um, the gene for being sort of a gearhead? Like, do you, are, do you like technology and electronics? Do you, is that something well, you fiddle I, around with? I love technology. I'm, 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 I, I never, my father studied it and he, he spoke German as well, you know, because of all the, the medical uh, issues, but he also studied electronics. And, and how things work. And I'm, a, I'm really a bit a novice. You know, if I have to repair an amplifier, I, I, don't, I don't know near what I'm doing as my dad did. But that being said, he did teach me that if you don't like something, change it. So, you know, I've, I've always uh, worked with instruments and amplifiers to modify them if, if that I, I didn't get a sound that I liked. And he was always doing that with with equipment uh, to listen to. He would he would position the speakers and the cabinets, and and he'd make his own cabinets in a shopsmith. And he 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 made my 
a cabinet for me. I had a 1959 uh, basement amplifier, Fender, uh, and um, that uh, when I started playing bass uh, in 1960, uh, uh, as well as guitar when I started in, in 1956, and I had an open back basement amplifier. I found a very famous uh, amplifier uh, with a 410-inch speakers with an open back. And now that that's how it was. And, and that turned out to be quite a, a popular amplifier with uh, steel guitar players, pedal steel guitar players too, particularly because of the open back sound. But when I played my Fender bass to it, and I was starting apparently to play a little louder than normal then, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, sorry, I, I blew a couple of speakers out and, and I remember my father said, you know, he says, there's a new, a new concept in speaker enclosures out right now called the infinite baffle. And you actually build the, the cabinet to the speaker. And he says, you can put a port or a hole in the speaker and, and change the port size and tune it to the speaker. And he says, according to this, it only would allow the speaker to go in and out so much where it wouldn't go to the point of a transient note hitting it like you do on a bass guitar and, and pulling that cone out so far that it broke the little coil wire, mm -hmm. you know, the little th one thread coil wire. And that's what, it, what I was blowing. So it was, it, this is a funny story. So he said, so you have four tenant speakers and he goes to, to the dining room table and puts a pad out there and he's all the mathematics he's working he's just leafing through the book you know, to calculate the size of the cabinets for these four tenant speakers. And he turns around and he smiles at me and I knew something was up. He says, well, son. And uh, he says, according to my calculations, the cabinet we need to build for those four tenant speakers so you don't blow any speakers is going to be about the size of the furnace down in the basement. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I said, how about this? How about if we make it to the size of my 1950 Pontiac? Which was huge. I mean, you could add, you could put twelve people back in the back seat of the nineteen fifty Pontiac Fire Chief, and so we did that, and we called it the coffin. And it was about I don't know, almost you know maybe th three feet you know wide and twenty four inches deep, you know, and and and, and twenty four inches high. Uh, and, and we called it the coffin. Put two handles on it. And, uh, you know, ordered some slap-on uh, Nalgahide kind of like coating uh, up at Sears, built it out of, out of plywood in the shopsmith, you know. And I put that, that Fender basement amplifier on, on top and just running the amp through it. And it sounded beautiful, you know, but it was a, a, a bit of a, a, always a, a humorous event, you know, getting one of the other band members to help me haul it in. You know, I had wheels on it the whole deal. And uh, this this was just when I started playing around nineteen uh, when I was sixteen. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine you want a gig on the second floor with that thing or in a basement. <laughs> oh, I we, we did, listen, man. Now here's a story for you. We played the Quantico, Virginia Marine Base, and those days the the enlisted men, eighteen twenty one, they could drink beer. Only in in the East Coast, it was three point two beer. You'd be amazing how much teenagers it, it just in the army, I, I Marines could get drunk on that. In any case, it was one of our regular gigs, and it was up on the second floor, and the and the uh, NCO club, 
I think Danny Gatton was with me. He's a very famous late guitarist of Washington, D.C. era. And I think we played this gig. And then you got to remember these bands this time, they, these are bands that are patterned after like, uh, oh, Louis Prima and the Smith. And, 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 and uh, we did, you did Ray Charles stuff, Huey Smith and the Clown stuff. You did, it did stuff with three saxes, you know, and rhythm and blues stuff and uh, a lot of stuff like that. In any case, we played this gig. Well, we took a, a break halfway through the gig. Apparently, we were too long on the break, and a riot broke out uh, amongst the enlisted, you know, drunken brawl broke out, and where, and where all of our equipment, all the band's equipment was tossed down the stairs out into the street from this NCO club. And the only thing that survived was that cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Uh, another thing you've talked a lot about is, um, is tone. And uh, I wonder if you could just take a couple minutes. Could you, could you talk to me about tone and what it is conceptually and specifically like does tone, does your tone as a player, does it transcend the instrument you're playing on or is the instrument a component of the tone? I've always wondered about that, how I can hear a guitarist and I can tell it's the same guitarist sometimes regardless of what they're playing. And I wonder if you could talk oh, absolutely. about that yeah you know i i tone is tone is who you are tone is your your essence and 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 i tell my students when i teach out at the yorma calkin and fur peace ranch guitar camp in southeast ohio <laughs> um when i when i talk to to students, whether the young or older you know whether they're they're players that have been playing for a while or 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 young kids they're just starting out to me i think uh tone is that seductive mistress that draws you into a room of of a of a of a player and uh tone and touch and uh, through the touch you get you get the tone and to me that's 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 the essence of who you are no matter what notes you play and you can you, the the note sequence and the style and the way you hit and whatnot. You can tell players by that as well. But a, a player that has his own tone creates his own atmosphere, and that's the uniqueness of that per, that one person. And you know, um, I've just loved. I, I I was fortunate at a very young age to be able to go to a concert hall and hear a full orchestra in front of me, to hear a choir in front of me, to hear. Uh, Andre Segovia play on a stage at Lisner Auditorium and alone by himself. And they hear that magical tone that would come out. And so I've heard Charles Mingus right in front of me 12 times in little clubs where I'd park my chair right in front. You know, I'd, um, uh, Eric Dolphy on a bass clarinet, unbelievable, you know, uh, John Coltrane. Uh, I'd hear people that just with their instrument in front of you, with no sound reinforcing, you're hearing the instrument itself. And, you know, a, a lot of that is, uh, is gone in many ways. There, there's a lot of sound production between you and that person. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that you and I have, have always done is play just with a guitar and a bass. And until mm -hmm. lately, this last, uh, since my late wife, Diana, passed away in 2012 i had tom rebecca as a tribute to her 
and also something I've always wanted to do, make, start making me a series of acoustic bass guitars called, he, we dubbed the Diana Basses. And with that purpose of, of me being able to have an instrument that holds up on its own without plugging into an amplifier. Mm. Uh, as a continuance of my quest to get the pure sound I, I can get from my fingers the way I play it and out in front of me. So I can sit across from Yorma with his Gibson J50. I can sit across with this instrument uh, and it holds its own. It sounds like a bass in the room. Where in the past there hasn't been a lot of thought uh, and involvement with acoustic bass guitars. Um, a stand-up bass, of course, you know, a double bass. That big box is what pushes that tone across the room. It gives it that unique character. Yeah. At the end of the day, though, it's a big violin. So I started out in the world of guitar as, as a guitarist. What I wanted was something that that would be a, a bass guitar, but it wouldn't sound like a thin little instrument like so many of the other others that are out there, which which basically are patterned after a, a jumbo sized acoustic guitar with a four string neck. Yeah. So he, Tom has put a lot of science into this in order to get that sound out. And for the last eight years, I've been playing these instruments, uh, and uh, as a, as a further quest in tone but you know the real answer is, is starting with a human voice you know when you hear somebody that has a, a tone of a certain aspect of their voice it just pulls you pulls you in and the same way with instruments and even though the piano is a mechanical instrument and there's mechanics between you and the way it hits the strings the touch it, people that are really very good at the top of their field get their own tone with a piano, even though it's, it's a contraption of sorts. The great thing about playing the, the bass guitar here is my fingers do touch the strings. Mm -hmm. That creates the tone. And then I work on that aspect in order to, to get the best tone I can. And for, for that, that's in a good part of the sequence is what leads me to what notes I play. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that, that that's, that's sort of how you encapsulate it. I, I, your, your, your response reminds me of something I heard um, the guitar player, Sonny Chirac say one time, he, he had to play guitar because he had asthma. He, he really wanted to be a saxophone player. And he talked about how you know, the, the saxophone just being sort of this pure extension of that essence, right? There's, there's really nothing between sort of your soul and the instrument. It's just, it's your breath. And the guitar was the second closest thing he could find to that. Um, it was the touch. And of course, of part of the mechanics with that is that as with a guitar, that breath, but don't forget in, in that saxophone with a reed and, you know, those guys, those guys obsess over the reeds in order to be able to manipulate that little piece in there that their breath goes through to create their own sound. Yeah. And that's why so many of the great uh, wind players of, of the 60s in the jazz world, you know, the Yusef Latif and, the, and uh, Eric Dolphy and John Coltrane and, and so many great jazz players, there, there was a, 
uh, each one sounded entirely different. Each one, you know, those early sixties in the in jazz field, those those players really worked to create their own pathway into their tone. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting that that sort of junction where the mouth meets the instrument there and how how crucially important and how obsessive the players are. If you, you know, talk to a wind player about their read or about their mouthpiece, it's fascinating to um, it's it's really. Yeah, I know. No, that's absolutely nutty. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, that's that that's that's like uh, the bridge from one side of the river to the other. Yeah, they they have to get that. They have to. That's that's the part that's the pathway they have to go in order to get that tone out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you you talked about not wanting to ever um, to specify like favorite music or pick favorite albums or anything like that. But uh, you know, because you've mentioned them a few times, the the um, the the John Coltrane uh, Village Vanguard uh, album from '61 with Eric Dolphy. Um, yeah, they, uh, were, absolutely um, oh, amazing. Yeah, amazing. Just, just I mean, stunning. I I listen to those. I saw all those guys so many times, you know, uh, uh, Washington DC was great like that, but also the guitarists, like I got to see the Montgomery players play with Monk, Monk Montgomery breaking all norms in the jazz world, playing, playing, uh, a Fender bass, you know, with West Montgomery. And, uh, you know, I, I got to, to see, uh, Roland Kirk stuff three horns in his mouth and play harmonies. <laughs> It's incredible. I know. It's incredible. You know, I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was a great period. But like you say, in in the late fifties, I spent a lot of time at the Howard Theater in Washington D.C. with his sister theater, the Apollo, where I got to see Bobby Blue Bland and his full orchestra. I got to see Ray Charles and his orchestra. I got to hear, uh, uh, you know, great players like Dave Fathead Newman with uh, with Ray Charles. Uh, uh, I got to hear great singers. Uh, uh, the the groups that came out of the late fifties, like the Coasters, and then Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, and all these interesting uh, rhythm and blues groups that came out of that era, and then flowing right just a couple of years later into the early part of the, the jazz world, where Washington D.C. was just uh, Washington D.C. had. So, uh, you know, it had uh, Charlie Bird playing a classical guitar, playing jazz on, on guitar. It had Sophocles Pappas, who was a classical guitar player, so a protege of, uh, of uh, Segovia. Uh, you know, it, 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 there was just so much going on th- through there. At the same time, be down the, go down the Shamrock and, 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 and listen to Mac Wiseman, uh, uh, the New Lost City Ramblers, and mm. Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, and and all the people that came up to the bluegrass world, you know, the Carter family. I remember Yorman and I going down to to uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and hearing the Carter family, uh, Mother Maybelle Carter and Grandpa Jones on on banjo, and and uh, uh, you know all all this uh, folk music influence that that I was so. Uh, enamored with at the same time and, and i feel fortunate in a way because i i i i never felt like i i was a snob about any one kind of music you know uh, or another so that's where i got my appreciation up for for in the blues world with uh with uh, uh reverend gary davis and sun house and sunny terry and brown and Bikie. at that in those early 60s 
while the, the jazz was blossoming, so was the so-called rediscovery of a lot of the Delta blues music yeah. by two guys in, in, uh, uh, on that ran the Washington label, Dick Spots, where I forgot the other gentleman, uh, that rediscovered Sound Hurt, uh, Sun House and Mississippi John Hurt. And because Yorma, you know, we had a, a little band together in high school when I was 14, he was 17. When he went off to Antioch College, couple of years later and started learning his style of the finger picking uh, uh, acoustic guitar through his, his, his roommate, Ian Buchanan. Then he got positioned uh, in New York to do some work uh, uh, because the Antioch College had work furlough programs. And he worked in New York and I take a train up there and meet him. Uh, and we go into all the folk clubs in New York City and, and see uh uh, Sanitarian Browning McGee and, and, and listen to the folk revival of, of the young, uh, college white guys, uh, you know, Dave Van Rock and, and of course Bob Dylan and all that, that early folk revival mm. scene, uh, in New York that brought back a lot of music from the, uh, the 20s, 30s and 40s. Yeah. It's, uh, did you guys, uh, I spoke to Yorma last summer, and I don't remember uh, where we came down on this question. But did you guys, knowing how influential uh, Gary Davis was, um, you know, on you guys in particular, and, and and some of the repertoire, but also just on a lot of players of your generation, um, did you guys interact with him? Did you know Gary Davis? No, I didn't. I think Yorma had met him uh, before. I had seen him play, uh, or heard him play rather, and um, but um, and I think. I think you want to have met him. He's got a couple of stories. I think he talks about it on one of the YouTube uh, uh, quarantine concert series he's been doing, you know, every week. If you're familiar with all of that going on at the Fur Beach Ranch now. Yeah, it's great. It's been, it's been phenomenal. Yeah. I've, I've been curious because it's, but you know, like a- uh, for me, for me, I could just, you know, it, it was just a, a, a spiritual entrance into the man's world. And also to listen to how really interesting and really complicated is his, his guitar playing and accompaniment to his, to his singing. So I, I was, I was fortunate of also doing that uh, after that period of time, uh, I got hooked up with a, a drummer that had, one of the drummers that had played many drummers that had played with, with James Brown. And he was a local African-American musician in, in uh, Washington, DC. And I guess it was 16 or 17, right after I started playing bass. And he got me hooked up with a, a, a number of different gigs. One of them was backing up Little Anthony and Imperials for two weeks, you know. Mm. And uh, here was this, this very young white guy looking every inch of 17 years old, playing with an all-black pickup band, singers and everything. But he got me th- these gigs. One of, the gig, one of the many gigs he got me, we did a series of almost weekly for a summer of... Uh, gospel gigs and they could be anywhere from in, in literally in somebody's church in quotes house that was that was part of their basement or on sunday mornings uh or or backyard or or uh small little meeting meat halls you know community meat halls uh with a with a usually it was a hammond organ neon bass even though the Hammond organ has, it has bass, but, but, but me on bass or guitar, uh, 
uh, he was on drums and maybe a, maybe a saxophone playing with a lot of gospel mm. uh, music. Um, and that, that put me into a world that I would have never had an entrance or an access to if it wasn't for this, this uh, kind gentleman that, that for some reason I had enough of something that, that it was okay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Before we talk about, uh, uh, and I want to be respectful of the, uh, knowing that the clock's ticking a little bit for you. Um, before we talk about sort of the emergence and getting back on the road and all that, I wanted to just ask you, um, could you tell me a little bit about, uh, about Alembic and about, um, about sort of the, you know, what was the, what was the genesis of your involvement with that, with that equipment and sort of where did they come from? I, I, I know more about the equipment than I do about the people in the company and, and sort of what, what was Alembic well, it's, it's all interesting. about? It's, yeah, I have to keep, give, first of all, a little precursor. I've always messed with instruments and amps and, and cabinets and all that kind of stuff. So when we, speaking of tone, if we take that to the next level of, of, of putting on shows, when we were playing in the early airplane stuff, we played many of shows where, where, where the singers were playing through a PA system, the kind that they announced baseball games with. Yeah. You know, this wasn't a high, high fidelity. It wasn't. The Bogan amplifier was the amplifier of choice, and you had horns, and quite often... It's, the singers sounded like they're playing through megaphones practically. Yeah, yeah. So when the Sam, so-called San Francisco scene developed and people started to drop out, as as the saying goes back then, the electric, you know, the people that were into electronics, the people that were they were in the aerospace industry that worked with 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 uh, composite fabrics and, and uh, uh, composite materials, and the people that that uh, that had craft, you know, uh, physically craft works. You know, as as this community came about, we started posing the question: Well, we we we've got to start. And as we started to play louder and louder, stack more amplifiers on stage and whatnot. And as we started to do outdoor shows, particularly, the question came up: Can't we can't the, can't the singers can't we have the PA system sound more? with more fidelity. Can we get them more hi-fi? And so various people from, from different worlds, the word workers that come in, the guitar makers that came into the, to the field, people that were talented in making guitars like Rick Turner, people that are in electronics like Ron Wickerson, Owsley, who worked on my first, uh, my first uh, bass he did the electronics. He and I worked the electronics out on that first guild base that I had. And we could go on and on about this. But in any case, we, it was all in the quest for, as, as we say, better toner and, and, and getting the sound out to the audience. It sounded like it did for us on stage because we're all in close proximity to all the equipment. And as we start to work with, with, working di- with different sonic stuff on stage, with a little more volume and 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 uh, a little more distortion and, and 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 experimenting with electric sounds, we you walk forty feet from the stage, it doesn't sound like this. So the idea was was can we get better quality amplifiers? Well, Macintosh had just come out with their had their high fi high fidelity amplifiers out, and they started 
to make a 2300, which was a two twin 300 watt solid state amplifier. And they were, were really powerful. If you look at those early photos, you'll see stacks and stacks of them. Yeah. I use them for power amplifiers. I take a Showman top and then drive it with the power of, the, of a couple of Macintosh amplifiers, along with maybe a Versatone amplifier, a little, a little uh, amplifier I still use to this day. But on stage, in order to get that sound out, both both the sound that was coming off the stage, but also for the vocals, it started to develop. Uh, people in the community started to develop. You know, I started making a lot of money to buy this. We did Grateful Dead, and then people associated with them, people associated with us. We started making a make the cabinets and 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 use high fidelity amplifiers on stage, and then later on with people like Ron Wickersham and a number of others started to, to tinker around with the preamps and start making on preamps and started to put it, putting that, uh, as Owsley did to me, he says, listen, we could take this, this guild guitar. Cause we, I was searching for better fidelity with that particular instrument when it went to a shorter scale, a hollow body again, in search for that acoustic tone mm. from the solid body Fender. He said, listen, we can put in miniature, uh, preamps in here and you can expand your tone we put tone filter pads in it just like you have in a recording studio so basically on those early guitars of ours it there they were similar to a strip in a recording studio where you could manipulate the sound and add f- fidelity to it uh, and out on deck there 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 were stacks of the macintosh power amplifiers that would go into the preamps and then because the theory of the vo- theory of the voice speakers were the the speakers of, uh, they were only commercially out there started stacking and making their own cabinets and buying Jensen speakers, uh, and JBL speakers and putting them in there and creating the, the great later on. You saw the great wall of sound that the Grateful Dead did. Yeah. In any case, the whole, the whole idea was to get that sound as pure as possible to as many people as possible. Yeah. And, um, it's 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 unbelievable to look at some of that gear. I mean, you talk about the wall sound. You talk oh, yeah. about all that. Well, I mean, we, it's just incredible. All of us. I mean, there was a period of time when I remember we we went to uh, it was Nebworth Festival down the Hot Tuna. We brought so much stuff I couldn't believe it. And I, uh, <laughs> for three or four guys. But anyway, basically. <laughs> you know, I mean, so so I mean, you got to understand that none of this stuff, the things you take for granted now and, and uh, the advancement of the sound system, that was all started back then pretty much in that, in that era, uh, uh, in, in and around San Francisco with the talent that was there. That's what, that's why, why people look upon it with, with such fond memories. I do, because it was really, you felt like there was all the talent in the community, we were sort of making our own world, you know, and like it's, it's often pointed out in Woodstock, we looked around and said, look, there's a whole, there's 300,000 people of us, you know. That's right. So yeah. it really was, was uh, regardless of how things morphed and shifted and, and everything always does change, that was really the, the, the nu- nucleus of a lot of that development was around the bands and, 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 and getting better sound out there. Yeah. Well, um, before I let you go, can you can you tell me a little bit about um, the, the sort of return to, uh, you know, getting back up and running and working? And it sounds like um, you guys have dates <laughs> well, on I'm the ready. books. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, like, is there have you been uh, is there anything you know, have you been learning? Have you been have you been woodshedding? Like, are we, oh, absolutely. We, yeah. Well, 
like say Yorma, Yorma and, and Vanessa Galton and out at their ranch, they, they've got a theater out there and that's where their teaching uh, camp is. I've been going out there since, for 22 years since it started out and I go out two or three times a year and teach and we do some shows uh, in, in their theater. What they, what they started doing last April was, was, was doing a, what they call a quarantine concert series in their theater there and and they would uh they would do it live and post it on youtube live uh that they do every saturday night i think they've done 40s i think last week's was number 42 42 weeks of that plus a bunch of other stuff but in any case so the playing has been going on what i've been i went out twice last year went out july and then and i i bought myself a new rv as did you want because we thought it's going to go back to the folk days. If this keeps up, we're going to just show up and play. <laughs> and um, for as many people is allowed, you know. So there be, won't be a big bus with 13 people on it anymore because you can't do that. Yeah. In any case, I went out twice last year. I spent about uh, a month in July and then uh, six weeks in October and November. And we played uh, a a number of shows that were posted on, on YouTube of that series. In the meantime, the last, last few months, you almost had, I think four or six shows of different, uh, as a solo. And we finally, uh, we did one show while I was out there in October up in Columbus with a spatial distancing and it worked out pretty well, but of course one third the amount of people. Yeah. And so this, uh, coming season that's going to open up at the end of May, and I think Cash sent you these dates. We're going to do an outdoor show at the Fur Peach Ranch because I think that way Vanessa and Yorma can have 80 people social distancing outside on the grounds, but you can only get about 40 people in the theater with the right distancing. Yeah. And then we're going to go down to Florida. We got four actual gigs, shows in front of live people. Imagine that. And, um, so, yeah, he's going to take his RV. I'll take mine down. We'll drive down uh, right at the beginning of June uh, because I think the first – I can't remember when when the, the dates are. You know. In any case, you can look this up. Yeah, I'm looking we'll on my it. email here. Uh, I think he sent – I think uh, Cash sent you a – yeah, we'll post uh, those. We'll post those with the episode. Yeah, you know, you'll sure. post yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, we got four shows there in uh, in the beginning of June, um, uh, in in Florida. The last ones in Key West, and uh, we'll see what else happens throughout the summer. This the the promoters are ready to do us. Of course, every venue that's out there now has every single band in the universe wanting to play as soon as it opens. Yeah. So. We had a, a, a series of shows lined up last year. I think it was supposed to first be July, then it was postponed to August, like everything, you know, leapfrog. Yeah. Then it was going to be later on the year for September, and then it was postponed again to this year in August, and then we, that didn't work. So now, now we're doing a tour in November, for the month of November around Thanksgiving. I think David Grismo will be with us on that tour. That's 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 been canceled, you know, moved forward four times. <laughs> in any case, we're hoping that we'll be able to do those shows in November. We're going to a little test case. will be these four shows we do uh, uh, in June. 
and we'll see what else crops up this year. I personally think that things won't, it'll be kind of putting a toe in the water this year. It depends on how the pandemic goes, whether, whether the, the numbers rise or, or fall and, and uh, how soon we can act, actually achieve the, the herd immunity yeah. that will uh, help things out. Yeah. Well, Jack, I know you. Uh, We're in the same boat as everybody else, you know? Yeah. I mean, the good right. news is uh, we can play acoustic hot tune of just two of us. So, so the, the, the problem of carrying a big band isn't, isn't our problem. Uh, uh, and having everybody uh, close together like that. When we do a, a electric hot tuner like we'll do in November, it's still just three musicians on stage. So uh, with a, a Justin Gibb added as as uh, as our drummer. Yeah. So um, we're we're waiting to see how it's all going to go along with everybody else. Well, I'm looking but forward yes, to seeing we're keeping you guys up again. On, you know, I every week I play along with Yorma here. Uh, put it up on my on my uh, my system. Uh, and I play along and post it on Facebook, you know, because because we don't really have the technology right where we where we can play in real time together, three thousand miles apart. You know? <laughs> That's because great. The latency. Keeps you sharp, though. Too. I mean, I can overdub anything I want, you know, but playing the same time, hearing each other the same time, is not possible just yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but they're working um, on it. They're working on it. Yeah, yeah. I think if the pandemic was three or five years from now, we'd. Uh... <laughs> we'd have we'd have big bands playing at the well same you time. know my necessity is the mother of invention so there you go yeah yeah jack thank you thank you for all the music thank you for the generosity with your time today um i just I oh absolutely this has been a real pleasure all right well stay safe and uh look forward to seeing you on the road okay you bet okay, Be well. bye-bye now bye-bye <laughs> Thank you so much, Jack Cassidy. And thank you, Cash Edwards, for making this interview happen. Thank you, Ant Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. And in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.